The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Okay, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, grab a hold of them and let's open them up to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20 is where we're going to be. There are hardback black Bibles under every single chair, and you can use one of those. Matthew chapter 20 uh, can be found on page 825. If you don't have a Bible of your own uh, or you like this version, the English Standard Version, you don't have one of those, please feel free to take that with you. If you're online with us, we love you. Uh, You can find Matthew uh, 20. You can open a phone or a tablet. Goodness, we just need you to see this, okay? So hand on a text. Matthew chapter 20 is where we're going to be. Today's text actually begins with the last verse of last week's text. So Matthew chapter 19, verse 30 said this, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Okay. uh, That is a saying that we hear all the time. Right? You, you probably have said this. You probably hear this all the time. Uh, the, the, the last shall be first. Right? You might, you might hear this or say this, uh, but it mostly comes up in really ridiculous ways. We mostly hear this or say this in ridiculous ways. I remember being uh, in line at the grocery store, uh, and I had a full cart, okay, full cart, uh, full of stuff, and an older lady uh, with like three things in a basket got in line behind me. Like, why she didn't go to the self-checkout, I'm not quite sure. Maybe she's like, you know what? I don't work here, so why am I doing their job for them? Like, maybe that was her thinking. Uh, but, but she gets behind me in a regular line, and I see that she's got, like, like cat food and lemons, right? Like, just a couple of, couple of old lady things. Uh, um, I don't know what those are. Uh, but so I'm, I'm going to be chivalrous. I'm going to be a nice guy. So I turn to her and I, and I just say, ma'am, why don't, you, why don't you go in front of me? Okay, I've got a full cart. You've just got a couple of things. Why don't you go in front of me? And, and, and I kid you not, here's what she says to me. She goes, oh, honey. That's how she starts, right? Oh, honey, uh, the first shall be last. Or the last shall be first. That was her. The last shall be first. And I thought to myself, uh, that's not how that works, actually. <laughs> no, you will be last. You will be last. <laughs> You're going to wait longer. I was just trying to be a nice guy, but okay, whatever. Um, also know a guy, uh, I know a guy whose son hit, uh, plays Little League Baseball, okay? Uh, and his son was distraught because he was the last one drafted onto his Little League team. Last kid. I mean, just not great, okay? Not, not, a, not, not making the majors. You got that, okay? Uh, and the kid was distraught because he was drafted last. I asked him, my, my friend, I was like, dude, how did you like console? Like, how did you comfort your son? He said, well, I just told him that the last shall be first with God, right? Like that's, so, so to inspire him, I was like, hey, listen, with God, the last shall be first. And, and come to find out that didn't really work. That pep talk didn't really work. Cause I saw him a couple months later. He's like, yeah, he still really stinks. Um, <laughs> Uh, I even hear, I even have heard that, uh, I'm not sure if this is true or not, but that I've heard that the Broncos had this saying all over their locker room last season, <laughs> right? Just like as a way to inspire them, okay? The last shall be first. I'm calling today's sermon last first, last first. Um, it's a statement, the last shall be first. It's a statement that actually on the surface does not make any sense, it doesn't make any rational sense, but hear me, uh, it's really important to understand that idea if we're to understand who our God is. 
It's really important because what we're going to see at the beginning and at the end of our text, I just read verse 30 from chapter 19 and verse 16 in chapter 20 are almost identical statements. The last shall be first. The first shall be last. So that's where we're going to be. We're going to see what Jesus has to say about this kind of convoluted thought. Um, So he ended last week by saying, many who are first will be last and the last first. And then Jesus tells this parable in chapter 20, verse one. Let's look together. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Okay, let's stop there. This is a parable. This is a parable. Jesus often uses parables in his teaching. A parable is like a story, an illustration, uh, but uh, parables tend to seem simple enough on the surface, but uh, in actuality, they can be very complex and nuanced, and frankly, at times, very frustrating. Very frustrating. So parables, they're not always straightforward. Like they're not always crystal clear as to what they mean. And frankly, they will often disturb the hearers. They're meant to kind of stir things up. They're meant to make the the hearer or the reader dig a little bit deeper, chew a little bit longer and wrestle with what's being taught. That's the purpose of a parable. And this parable in particular is one of the more complex parables that Jesus teaches. It's one of the more complex ones that he tells, but it does teach us some really important things about God. So he he begins by saying, hey, this is what my kingdom is like. This is what my kingdom, the kingdom of God is like. It's like a master who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Okay, and so spoiler alert, I'll just tell you right now, the master is God, okay? The master is God. Uh, now, this idea of going out and hiring v- workers for a vineyard, it may not strike a chord with us particularly, but in many places around the world, specifically in labor-type jobs, there will be workers waiting in a specific part of town where employers can drive up, pick a few, and hire them out for day labor. I went on a mission trip, a short-term mission trip to Nicaragua many years ago, and this was the thing. There would be workers who would just kind of stand in certain spots around the city, and labor uh, foremen would come and pick them up. They'd jump into the back of the pickup truck, and they would go and do a day of work. That's a very normative thing uh, in many places around the world. Additionally, additionally, what you need to know is that the Hebrew work week is a little different than our work week. A little bit different, okay? Uh, The day started at sunrise. Okay, 6 a.m. was when the day started, and then the day ended at 6 p.m., which is essentially sundown. So so it was a 12-hour work day laboring in the vineyard. That's the idea. And they worked six days a week, not five days a week, six days a week. So that's 72-hour work weeks. And you're like, hey, that's how much I work, 72 hours. That's how much I work a week. And I would say, first of all, you shouldn't, okay? And second of all, probably not in a field, okay? So uh, this is a little bit different. 6 a.m. going out into a vineyard. Look at verse two. After agreeing with the laborers, For a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So the master agrees on the wages with these first workers for one denarius. Now, a denarius is a normal day rate for a day laborer. 
It's what one family, a normal family in this time period would need to be supported, to have food and to shelter and it would pay the bills. One denarius would support his family. Now look at verse three. And going out about the third hour, the master saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I will give you. Now, if you get a little confused with like military time, right? Where it's like, oh, it's like 1700 hours. Like I know Kevin has his watch set for this. You're weird, man. You're weird. Okay. But like if, if military time freaks you out a little bit, Hebrew time's a little bit even more different than that. Okay. It says the third hour. Now the third hour was measured after the start of the day. So the start of the day is the beginning, 6 a.m. So the third hour is 9 a.m. So at 9 a.m., the master goes back out to the little town square or whatever, uh, and he sees that there are other workers who have not been hired. They're standing idle in the market, so he hires them. But I want you to note that there is no agreed-upon contract for how much they will be paid. The first workers, there's an agreed-upon contract. I will pay you one denarius to work in my field. But the rest of the workers will not have a contract. The master simply says in verse four, whatever is right, I will give you. Whatever's right. They just believe that the master is going to do good by them and hopefully take care of them. But remember, they need a denarius to feed their families. They need one denarius to actually kind of pay the average bills. But a quarter of the day has already passed. There's no agreed upon amount. The quarter of the day has passed. Now look at verse five. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, the master did the same. So he does it two more times, okay? He goes back at noon, he goes back at three. And so now we have four groups of workers, 6 a.m., 9 a.m., noon, and then three o'clock. But only the first workers know what they're gonna make. Everybody else are just trusting in the goodwill of the master. Now look at verse six. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He then said to them, you go into the vineyard too. So this is where we get the idea of the 11th hour, right? We've heard this. You've maybe heard about, oh, it's the 11th hour. It's like when something happens right in the nick of time, it happened at the 11th hour. This is the original 11th hour right here in Matthew chapter 20. Uh, but this one is wild. This is a wild 11th hour. This is, what, what time is 11th, 11th hour? Do you guys know? 5 p.m. Yeah, math geniuses in here. Love it, okay? 5 p.m. That means there is one hour left of the workday. There's one hour left, and these guys are still waiting to be hired on. And the master, I mean, you notice his interaction with them is a little bit longer than with the other groups. He's kind of shocked. He's like, what are you doing here? Why are you still here? And they say, no one's hired us. Like, we've been here. Nobody has hired us. So think about this. These are poor day laborers, and they, these ones, have been rejected by everybody else. No one has hired them all day. They clearly wanted to work, or they would have gone home a long time ago. They clearly wanted to work, but no one would give them an opportunity. 
So the master tells them to go into his vineyard as well. It's shocking. If you know the story, it doesn't kind of hit as hard because you know it, you're familiar with it. But this is shocking. Like, what's the point of one hour of work? What's the point? And what are they thinking that they're going to receive in payment? A twelfth of a denarius? Like, that's, that's very likely what they assumed they would get. They're expecting that much. And so it's here that I want to make my first point about the master, about God. And it's this. Our God relentlessly pursues us. The master relentlessly pursues. God relentlessly pursues us. The master, hear me, the master is the relentless one here. It may seem like the workers are pretty relentless because they're still standing around, hanging out. Uh, yeah, they're, they're waiting and they're hoping. But this guy, we, and commentators don't know what to do with this. Why did the master keep going back to the town square to hire more workers? Why would he even go at the 11th hour? And they're baffled by this. It's kind of a baffling idea. But he goes out to hire workers five times in the day, even at the 11th hour. For what purpose? One measly hour of work? But remember, this is a story. This is a parable. It's meant to teach us something. In God's kingdom, it's the master who never stops pursuing us. He never stops showing up to look for idle workers who might work in his vineyard. That's the idea here. He's always pursuing. He's always hiring. It's never too late to get into uh, his kingdom. He's always relentlessly pursuing us. But then it's here in the story that we, we find a crux. There's a crux point in this story here because remember the original contract with the first workers was one denarius for 12 hours, okay? So that's, that's what they're expecting to get paid. But the agreement with the other four groups is Whatever is right. That's, that's whatever is right. Now, if you were to read this in the Greek, the Greek word translated right uh, here is the Greek word dikaios, uh, dikaios, which means righteous or just. Whatever's right, whatever's just, whatever's fair, that's what you're going to get paid and every reader, every single reader, including us today, we know what's fair. We don't have to argue about it. We know what's fair, okay? What's fair is what's earned. That's how it works. What's fair is what's earned. So the first group should get one denarius. The second group should get three quarters, the sixth hour group, a half. The ninth hour group, a quarter. And the eleventh hour group should really only get one twelfth of a denarius. I don't even know what that is, okay? But that's how much they should get paid. Listen to me, that's fair. That is fair. That is just. It just is. There's no arguing about that. We all know that. It's a basic tenet of how we're wired. But remember, this is a parable. And what Jesus said at the beginning of the parable is that this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like this. And then he tells this story. So what is fair in the kingdom of heaven? 
That's what we're meant to wrestle with. That's the crux point, and that's where we'll pick up in verse eight. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. There's that last first theme. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each one of them received a denarius. Each one of the 11th hour workers received a full denarius. And every reader of this text, both then and now, are supposed to have the same response. Our response is supposed to be, are you kidding me? A full denarius? Are you serious? Like seriously, as I'm reading this parable, it's made me upset in the past. Does anybody have a justice streak in them? Just like a little, they've just kind of like got a sense of justice in their heart. And when they read this, they're just like, really? Really? What is this? This parable? Oh, here we go. It's the every kid gets a trophy parable. Thanks, Jesus. Is that what this is? Because it makes me a little bit upset, right? What is Jesus doing here? Is this some sort of anti-capitalist Jesus rant? Sure seems like it on the surface, right? Is this some sort of like Jesus advocating a new Marxist Christian business philosophy where everyone gets paid the same regardless of how much work is done? Is that what he's doing? Well, remember, it's a parable. It's a story that's meant for us to dig deeper. It's meant for us to ask questions. It's meant to disturb us at a certain extent. And hear me, this is a disturbing parable, if it's not a little bit disturbing to you, it's because you're too close to it. You're too familiar with it. You know what happens in the end of the story. But this was shocking. The master hired the people in the last hour. That was a surprise at, in and of itself. That he hired them at the 11th hour is surprising. But even more so that they pay him the same. Now think for a minute from the perspective of the 11th hour workers. It's easy to think about this in terms of fairness and equity, but think about it from the perspective of the 11th hour workers. They need a denarius to feed their families. They need a denarius to pay their bills. They need that denarius to live, to survive. We talk sometimes about living from paycheck to paycheck. Uh, these guys are living day to day, denarius to denarius. They don't put, Hebrew people don't put money in the bank in Roman culture because they're afraid that they're going to be stolen from. And hear me, they were. So they would very much live day to day, denarius to denarius. And imagine their thoughts after waiting hour after hour after hour after hour. The first batch got hired at 6 a.m. I imagine these 11th hour guys are standing there ready to go. They got their hammers. They got, you know, whatever they're doing. I guess you don't need a hammer in a vineyard, but whatever, Okay. Unless you're smashing those things, in which case it might come in handy. But, but they're not chosen. They're not chosen at 9 a.m. They're passed over at noon. Three o'clock rolls around. Nobody's picked them up, and yet they still waited. Imagine the agony in that wait. Imagine this. Kind of like, uh, like those pressure-packed days in elementary school when everybody's lined up and getting picked for dodgeball. You remember these days? 
This is a back-to-school illustration for this morning, okay? But you can, we can all go back together and remember when you'd be at recess and it's time to pick teams for dodgeball and you're all lined up. And as you're lined up and you're standing there and the captains are picking teams, the kids are starting to dwindle down and the anxiety of getting picked last starts to rise in your heart. Maybe you were a great athlete, okay? And so you were picked first and you're like, hey, I've never been picked last. Good for you, okay? God bless your ministry, Okay. <laughs> But you can imagine the anxiety there. And then they, it's like you and one other kid and they pick that kid and that kid has like terrible asthma. You're like, really? You pick the kid who can't breathe? Like he runs for like a minute and a half and he stops. Like, like really, he needs medication and you're gonna choose him over me? Like that moment? That's kind of what's going on here. These 11th hour guys are just waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting. And I've just got to imagine by 5 p.m., They've got to be like, what are we doing? What are we doing here? We should just call it. We should move. This town's a bust for us. We should just go home. But right at the 11th hour, the last minute, the master shows up. They do one hour of work only to have a full denarius pushed into their palm after that hour, they must have been floored. Can you imagine these hardened laborers with tears welling up in their eyes, vision of their children eating that night? Visions of not having to tell their wives that they need to cut back, that they've got to go without, that they've got to skimp. Can you imagine this moment of gratitude that would well up in your heart if you had waited there all day only to be hired at the last minute and paid the same as if you'd worked the whole day? The reason why this is here is so that I can make my second point, and here it is. Our God is wildly generous. Our God is wildly generous. He relentlessly pursues us and he is wildly generous, generous far beyond we could ever hope or imagine in far better ways than we could ever prepare ourselves for. Because listen, the economics of what this guy does make no sense. It makes zero sense. He is getting almost 40% less work than what he is paying for from every laborer who didn't work the full day. But he just tells them to trust him. Just trust me. I'll give you what's right. I'll give you what's just. I'll give you what's fair. And as readers, we, we, we are meant to, to, to be floored by the enormous generosity of this master. I mean, he's almost foolish in how generous he's being. But then we would also naturally expect that the first group might be paid proportionately higher. Okay, and, and by the way, that's what these workers, the first hired workers, they're thinking this as well. These guys who were hired first are at the end of the line. Remember, they paid the, the, the latest workers first and the first workers last. The last shall be first. And so those guys are watching from the end of the line and they can see what's going on. And, and you got to imagine when they see a denarius hit the hand of a guy who worked for one hour, he's not even sweaty yet. And you don't have to go home and shower. Bro still smells good. Manicure's still looking fine, right? Like he's in. And they see that and they've got to be going, oh, 
a denarius, one denarius to that guy? That's crazy. That's crazy. That must mean, and they start doing the math on their fingers and on their toes, and they must think, I'm gonna get 12? If he's generous with them, maybe he'll be generous with me. I'll get 12. I'll get 12. Well, let's see what happens. Verse 10. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. So there it is. They think this. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But the master replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? It's easy to hate the hired first guys. It's easy to read that and to be like, those guys are jerks. But I think each one of us would respond very similarly to them if we were in this position. When those hired first only get one denarius, the same amount as the guys who worked one hour, they cry out, That's not fair. And listen, it ain't. That's not fair. If you paid them that much, then you should have given us more. We worked more. Therefore, we deserve more. Listen, that's fair. That's just. That's right. But the master just responds with this. Hey, didn't we agree? He talks to one of them. It says he, he talks to one of them. He doesn't address the whole group. But it mean, and I think it goes to one just because it's meant for each one of us to hear this interaction. Didn't we agree on one denarius for the day's work? What wrong am I doing you? Am I going back on my word? Because I'm not. What wrong am I doing you? It's my money. It's my denarius. Can't I do with it what I want? And then he says, or do you begrudge my generosity? And I wonder if some of them are like, yeah, we do. We do begrudge your generosity, Jesus. Throw a little bit more of that our way. In essence, what the master is saying is, hey, what do you mean that's not fair? What do you mean that's not fair? Who am I not being fair with? Because I am being fair with you. I am being fair with you. I'm giving you exactly what we agreed upon. Actually, the only ones I'm not being fair with is everybody else. The only one who's not getting what they deserve is everybody else except for you. And, oh, certainly, I am not being fair to myself. The one who's really bearing the brunt and the weight of this payout is me. Now, a couple of things to note in these verses. These verses are really important. First, uh, 
what the master says at the very end when he says, do you begrudge me my generosity? Do you begrudge my generosity? Uh, In your text, actually in the ESV, it has a footnote that says that a more literal translation is uh, this. Is your eye bad because I'm good? That's a more literal translation. It's weird to say it that way. Is your eye bad or is your eye evil? That's what he's asking. Is your eye evil because I'm good, because I'm generous? And in the scriptures, the reason why we don't translate it that in our English is because we don't quite understand it as well. But in the scriptures, the eye is always directly linked to the heart. If you go back to Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if your eye is full of darkness, then your whole being, your whole body is full of darkness. And what he is meaning is that the eye is actually the heart. Essentially, the, the eye, like if you set your heart on something, it's the same as like setting your eye on something. It's like your heart and your eye are connected. This is why some parents say to a child, you are the apple of my eye. It means like that they have, you have deep affection for that person. So, so the indictment on those who are hired first from the master, from God, is this. Is your heart evil? Is your, is your eye bad? Because I'm being generous? He's like, listen, the way that you're responding to my generosity to these other laborers is showing that there's something wrong right here. The way you are responding is indicating that there's something not right in your heart. It's the first thing to note in those verses. Here's the second thing to note. Uh, In verse 14, the master says, take what belongs to you and go. Take what belongs to you and go. And many commentators interpret that command to go as a harsh command. Like that there is an aspect of judgment here. That these are men who are sent away. The master is sovereign and he has the right to do whatever he wants. And if those first workers don't like it, then they can leave. In some ways, this pairs with last week's story of the rich young ruler who walked away sorrowful because he had great riches. And now the charge to these first workers is, you can go too. Guys, it's my last point. It's my third point about God. Our God is devastatingly honest. He is devastatingly honest. Honest. He relentlessly pursues. He's wildly generous, but he's also devastatingly honest. This is a very different God than kind of the American evangelical version of God where, you know, Jesus is just kind of like Tinkerbell, right? Just like sprinkling the spirit, floating around, making hopes and dreams, never says anything to offend, right? Never says anything to upset you or to challenge you. He's just there to kind of like, you know, rub the lamp and he's going to make your wishes and your dreams come true. That's how many imagine Jesus to be, but that's not how he's portrayed in this story. He is devastatingly honest with those who he picked first, those who he chose first, he says, well, when they start complaining about fairness, he will have none of it. And he's like, hey, I gave you what we agreed to. I gave you what we agreed to, and you're upset because I'm being generous with other workers, your brothers, 
Those who were standing there at 6 a.m. with you, you're begrudging my generosity there. Something's wrong with your heart. Something is wrong with your heart. Take what belongs to you and go. This is a stern warning, my friends. And in the final verse, verse 16. So the last will be first, and the first last. So the point of this parable is for us to reflect on all of the characters. It's for us to reflect on them. It's for us to consider what God says about them and what this says about God and his kingdom. And then, like every parable, we who have ears are supposed to hear. We who have ears are supposed to hear and discern and apply it then to each one. So, If I'm honest, the first reading of this parable years and years ago was confusing, confounding, and infuriating. It's confusing. It kind of boggles the mind, and it actually rubs against any sense of fairness, any sense of justice that we have in our heart. I didn't find myself siding with the the last workers when I first read it. I found myself siding with the first workers. It doesn't seem fair that they worked 12 hours and ended up getting the same. That just doesn't seem fair. But then as I learned more about God and as I studied the scriptures more and as I engaged with the gospel, I realized and found myself going when I read this parable, oh, thank God he doesn't play fair. Thank God the kingdom of heaven doesn't work on the equity that I think fairness works in our world. Because now hear me, if we're honest, there isn't a single one of us in here who wants to walk up to God and go, hey, I would really like what I deserve right now. I would really, can you just give me what I've earned, God? Why don't you just give me what's fair? Why don't you just give me what I've earned? Nobody would want to say that because everyone, if you said that, every one of us would scoot away because we think in Old Testament style, God's going to fry that dude, Right? We, we don't want what's fair. Does anybody really want what they deserve? Not me. I don't. With my life, with what I've done, with what goes through my mind, listen, you only get to see a filtered version of that, and that's a little bit on edge, right? But what, like, sometimes I hate, listen, sometimes I hate the thoughts that I get the thoughts that come into my head, like I can't catch, I catch myself thinking such crazy stuff. Anybody else? Like in traffic, somebody cuts you off, you think crazy stuff? Like stuff they would put you away for life for? Anybody? Okay, if it's not a safe place, come take a face mic from me and you can preach, okay? But like I catch my, and I hate that I think those things, but the things that come into my mind, like if anybody saw that, I'm like, gosh, if they could read my mind, I would be, I mean, I'd be canceled, I'd be fired, be put in prison. I don't want what I've earned. I don't want what I deserve. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is that in the greatest move of that's not fair, 
God took all of that, all of my sin, all of my rebellion, everything, and he placed that on his only begotten son. Listen, that's not fair. And then God took all of Jesus' righteousness, all of his obedience, and he offers it freely to me and credits it to my account. Listen, that's not fair either. Oh, praise the Lord that we have a God who doesn't play fair. We are those hired last. And we have been given a whole denarius in our hand. And not one of us earned it. He relentlessly pursued us. He was wildly generous with us and he will be devastating on, devastatingly honest with us. So I wanna end with this. There is a, another parallel parable to this in Luke chapter 15. It's the story, another parable of a father and this father has two sons. One is known as the prodigal son or the lost son. Uh, and what this son did, the prodigal, is he squandered his inheritance on, on rambunctious, licentious, sinful living. Give me what's mine. And he went and he squandered it. Squandered it. And in Luke 15, verses 17 through 19, I, we find some of my favorite verses in literally the whole Bible. So Luke 15, 17 through 19 says this. But when the prodigal son, the first son, the lost son, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. These are some of my favorite verses in all of the gospels because I love the idea that the lost son came to himself. Have you been in that moment where it's like the light goes on and you come to yourself and you're like, what am I doing? How did I get here? I'm standing in pig slop. It would be better if I were a slave. And he comes to his senses, and you know how the story goes. The son heads home. The boy stop, starts the long, shameful journey home, rehearsing in his mind the statement he's going to say to his father, accept me as a servant. He's taking me on as a slave. But before he can even get there, the father sees him. The text says he sees him from a ways off. And the father hikes up his long robe and he runs to his son. And instead of yelling at him and screaming at him and betraying him and blasting him and putting him in the slavery part of his household, instead what he does is he grabs him and he gives him a hug, hugs his neck and kisses his face and puts his robe around him and a ring and a sandal. And, and then he takes him home and he throws a party. He kills the fatted calf. I mean, it's so unexpected the way that the father treats the son in this moment, just like the lavish generosity of a good master giving the 11th hour workers a full denarius. And then the famous verse, verse 24 says this, for this, my son was dead and is alive again. 
He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So we love this story. We, we, we all know this one. This one is, it's a, it's a greatest hits gospel story for us. But the story doesn't end there because there was an older brother. There was a second brother. And the story goes on that as the older brother hears from the field the music and the dancing, he asks one of his servants who tells him, hey, your brother came home. Your brother's home. Your father has received him back. And then verse 28. But the older brother was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? I'll sum that up. The older brother says, That's not fair. And then the father says in verse 31, he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And the story notably never tells us whether the older brother goes into the feast or not. The younger brother's there. The whole household is eating the fatted calf. It's a big cookout. And the older brother is out in the field sulking. Both stories present the same conundrum. Our story and this story, they both present the same conundrum. Who really is the lost brother in this parable? Is it the prodigal son or is it the older brother who never left? Listen, who really in our story is the more pitiable laborer? Is it those who were hired first Or is it the ones who were hired at the 11th hour? It's the last first. It's the last first. Listen, for some of you, the master is in relentless pursuit of you. Okay, some of you, you, for the first time, he's actually on your tail and he's pursuing you and he's choosing you. He's calling to you and you need to respond to that. For others, man, you've just wandered. You've just kind of strayed a bit. You find yourself in the field begrudging what he's doing in other people. I'm telling you, he is in pursuit of you. Whether you were third hour, sixth hour, twelfth hour, it doesn't matter. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to surrender all of that. And he does this by being wildly generous with you. He didn't do this to slight the first workers. He did this to show off who he is to the first workers, his generosity. But I just want you to hear, for many of us in here, this is actually a parable that's meant to be devastatingly honest with us. 
Hear me, if you have not grasped the gospel fully, if you've not understood and experienced mercy and grace that you were actually not worthy to be chosen in the first place, if you haven't had that, you'll return to being condescending and condemning and anxious, insecure, joyless, and angry all the time. So the question for each one of us to ponder today is this. Are you like the first workers? Are you like the older brother? Do you begrudge the generosity of the master? That's what I want us to reflect on. That's what I want us to take a moment to think about. What do you need to lay at his feet? Okay, what do you need to confess? What do you need in you to change that he might flood you and your soul with gratitude for who he is. The last will be first and the first last. Let's pray together. Father, we bless you. This is an interesting parable, Lord. One that at times can feel baffling. One that at times can feel unfair. And yet, Father, it is. It is unfair. And we're so thankful as we dig a little deeper in this parable, as we dig a little deeper into our own hearts and our own lives, we are so thankful that you don't play fair. None of us wants what we deserve. We want everybody else to get what they deserve, but we don't want what we deserve, and that is an indication that our eye is bad, that our eye is evil, that there's something still wrong inside of us. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that we would not have hearts that are like that. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would warm our, our, our souls to how good you are, how generous you are, how relentless you are, how, how unbelievably gracious you are, but how truly honest you will be. This should be a warm blanket and a strong caution that we receive from this text. So Lord, each one, Holy Spirit, speak to each one of us Reveal in us what we need to confess. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. If there are those who have not surrendered to the master and entered into working in the vineyard, I pray, Holy Spirit, by your power, that would be happening today. So God, we love you. Thank you for this story, for this parable, for the truth that it is. We pray that it would move from our heads into our hearts and take root deeply in our lives. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.